Genesis 20. Uh, first book of the Bible. We have been in Genesis now for a couple of months. And we come to what is, in some ways, a disturbing passage. Um, because, from one perspective, you, you want the heroes of the faith to be heroes. Sometimes they are not. And Scripture doesn't hide these things. So what does the Scripture intend to teach us in a chapter like this? You will notice that this is a repeat as well of Abraham's actions in Egypt when he lied about his wife. And here he goes again. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed to Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given you your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Thus the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our lives. Let us pray. Lord, 
Open up our hearts to receive your word, to believe it, and to live it out fully in our lives by your sovereign grace through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, you see this title, God blesses his undeserving people, that his people may then bless an undeserving world. And we first look at how God blessed Abraham, but it's very difficult as you first look at it. How do we take this passage? Because Abraham lies about his wife. He endangers her. He endangers Abimelech. He endangers Abimelech's whole kingdom. And he endangers the whole future of the promise of God. In the very next chapter, Isaac is to be born. But here he is on the cusp of that fulfillment. And he's about to throw it all away. It's like a guy spending his whole fortune, every last penny, on a used lottery ticket. You know, Abraham, what are you doing here? And then, kids, look at what the result is. He does this lie, and then Abraham receives sheep and oxen and servants and the finest real estate in Gerar, and then a thousand pieces of silver. It's the equal to what a worker could make in 167 years. And those are not dog years. That's like real years. Abraham hit it big in Gerar. So he lies and he gets all this. Do you lie to your parents and you're going to get an extra brownie after dinner because of it? Right? Am I going to lie to the RRS and they'll reward me with 500 extra dollars? Is this the teaching? You do wrong to your neighbor and it'll go well in the end. Well, I think you know the answer to this, but what is going on here? And here is the truth, one truth that we we draw from this passage is that God blesses his believing people even though they fail in many ways. God blesses his believing people though they fail in many ways and continue to prove that they really have never been deserving and continue not to be deserving of his mercy and grace. You see, Abraham has exhibited great faith. He did abandon his whole country and his family to come to a land he didn't even know uh, what it was. He didn't know where he was going. In chapter 14, when Lot is kidnapped by this uh, group alliance of kings, Abraham takes off after them. That's a deadly quest, right? You're going to fight these kings that have defeated so many others. But He was brave, and and he believed God, and he did it. His faith was exhibited in chapter 15, and it says he was, it was considered righteousness before God because he believed God. He obeyed God in the covenant of circumcision. He displayed grace in the way he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's a man of faith, but he's a man who fails. And this is about how God is faithful to his promise. He is faithful to his people, even in failure, if they, as they continue to believe in him. And God powerfully intervened to preserve the promise, to preserve his people, 
at this point. What a dream. You are a dead man. You imagine walking into a bathroom, guys in front of you, God comes out behind you and the guy says, you are a dead man. Don't want to give you nightmares, but and this 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 little conversation, this little talk with the Bimelet begins that way, and then it ends with, and if you don't repent and return her, you will surely die. In the words of Genesis chapter two, where God says, If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And so though God acknowledges Abimelech's relative innocence, nobody really mentions that Abimelech just took Sarah, right? He says, my sister, he sent and took Sarah. No conversation, no agreement, no contract. Okay, she's your sister. Now she's in my harem. There you go. So not complete innocence here. It is what kings did. And as God points out, it was I that kept you from sinning, and notice, against me. I stopped you from this sin against me. I did not let you touch her. He may have kept Abimelech from Sarah partly because of sickness. The way he asked, he says he will pray for you and you will live indicates that maybe everyone is coming down with something and, and it's affecting the women, it's affecting the men. He has shut down the health and well-being of Abimelech and his whole household in order to rescue Abraham from disaster. He is committed to his promise and he will fulfill his promises even in the face of our failure. He is going to bring it to fulfillment. But you'll notice in this passage, it is to restore Abraham to his place where he blesses the nations. Well, that's why I've included this passage in your bulletin, just reminding you of what was said back in Genesis 12. Notice on into this quote, he says, I will make your name great so that what? Why am I making your name great? So that you will be a blessing. That is why I am drawing you to myself. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse. And that's being fulfilled even here, you see. The very promise of being a blessing, uh, of blessing those who bless and cursing those who curse. And then he says, and, and you all the tribes of the earth shall be blessed. So he is rescuing Abraham from disaster, disaster, but rescuing him for this ministry of blessing that he's been called to as the recipient of God's promise. Now, he calls him a prophet, and that may sound a little bit funky, right? When the prophet has just lied, right? But prophet in this context means one who intercedes with God and one who is a channel of blessing from God. It's like the go-between, between God and the people. And therefore, he's the, he's the instrument of God's blessing even to the nations, So Abraham is restored. And in verse 17, he prays and God does heal Abimelech. He is now a blessing to Gerar. 
And this in spite of the fact that when Abimelech confronts Abraham, this basically is made up primarily of two conversations. God has a conversation with Abimelech, and then Abimelech has a conversation with Abraham. That's the essence of this central part of this passage. But when we, they have this conversation, you're more impressed with Abimelech and less impressed with Abraham. <laughs> because Abimelech shows more character, more substance than Pharaoh when this happened earlier in chapter 12. Because Pharaoh simply said, why did you lie to me? But here, Abimelech shows this moral earnestness on his own part. How have we sinned against you? What did you see in us that would cause you to do such a thing? And he calls it the great sin in all of these societies. The great sin of adultery was worthy of death. Why why, why would you do this to us? What have we done? And notice he uses us and he speaks of his own kingdom. He has a concern for all of his people in this. He has this respect for what is right in a pagan context. Even his men in verse 8, which is really the center of this passage in one way, that they were afraid. It's the same word that Abraham uses in chapter 11 when he says, there is no fear of God. Oh, yes, there is fear of God. You read that one wrong, Abraham. They have this fear of God in, in at least the pagan sense of their respect for what is right with people. That's the meaning in their context. A respect for doing what is right with others. And then, of course, Abraham's little lame excuses, right? Uh, First, that there's no fear. Well, that's off base. And then this little thing about she is my sister, it kind of reminds me of a kid. You say, did you clean up your room? Well, I was in there and... And there were toys, and I saw the closet, and, and, and the, you know, I was on my bed, and, and you, did you clean up? You know, he's not admitting anything. That's kind of Abraham here, just excuse, excuse. And then he says, well, and this, perhaps this means that I didn't single you out to do this just to you. It's what I do to everybody, but that didn't really help either, does it? Oh, so that's your pattern. I just get included in your pack pattern. You see, it's not even because Abraham is perfect in his confession. This is mercy. It's mercy. The same mercy that rescued Lot. And as Ryan was teaching about that and how the angel man, I like that term, reached out and grabbed Lot in his mercy This is God reaching out and grabbing Abraham in his mercy. Not because there's anything deserving in Abraham. It's his his mercy. It's his grace. As Lot was hesitating, so Abraham is committing great folly and hazarding everything because of his fear. And certainly a good thing that God continues to bless Abraham and uphold his promise and use him as an instrument of blessing because your and my salvation depend on this. This promise about Isaac is ultimately a promise about Jesus Christ. And so from a human standpoint, truly, 
our salvation hangs in the balance of Abraham's fear. And God is acting here not just for his benefit and even the benefit of Gerar, but he's acting for your benefit and my benefit. This is his love for you that will not be denied. It will not be assailed. He will fulfill his promises. So this brings us then, you know, to this second aspect that he blesses us as well. He blesses his people. I call it here, blesses the children of Abraham. And I've included uh, the, the, our, the logic of the Bible and how we get to this point. You see these two promises later in Genesis that he says to Isaac in your, uh, or to uh, uh, Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So it's not just in you, Abram, but it's in your offspring, your seed. And again, it's repeated there in chapter 28. The earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. But here's Paul. Notice the next text there in your bulletins, Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abram, Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So here's Paul saying ultimately what Abraham was talking about as he spoke of the seed, was Jesus Christ himself. And then at the end of that chapter, as I have it here, verse 29, then the, the blessing is in the seed. He is the one that will bless the nations, and all who belong to him are part of the seed. All who belong to him are now children of Abraham. So we are now living out the Abrahamic faith and the Abrahamic promise that we will be a blessing to the nations. And I want to say this then, even when we fail, God desires to restore us either individually or as families or as a church or as a denomination or as a church worldwide to continue to restore his failing people to make us a blessing to others. And of course, it's not a license to sin. But when we fail, and even in great, great matters, God would restore us as he did Abraham and use us to do good to others. That is what this about is about. God will fulfill his promise. He will make his people a blessing to the nations even in the midst of their weakness. It is amazing how God again and again even uses the failure itself and the struggle and the recovery to help others who had the same failure over and over again. How our very weakness and failure, as Paul himself said, in his own personal weakness, we don't know the nature of it in 2 Corinthians 12, but he says, in my weakness, I've experienced the power of God. And I've seen God use me and seen that it didn't depend on me. It depended upon his grace. And so he began with us this way. The first calling us to himself is to take those who have failed, those who, whose whole life has been dedicated against God, right? And to take us and to make us, as we heard in Sunday school, 
the workmanship of God. We who were dead, we who were lost by nature, children of wrath, he has made us now his workmanship. That's how this whole life began. Brothers and sisters, it continues, not with similar abandonment on our part, but failure nonetheless. We will never live perfectly as hard as we try. And yet God is always restoring us and using us. It's not, okay, I forgive you at the start. You really mess up. It's back to hell for you. He's committed to us in his covenant. I love what we sang in the first hymn. God our Father tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us. Rescues us from all our foes. Come and worship widely as his mercy goes. We just sang it. We must believe it. We must rest in God's commitment to us. A phrase that has bothered me a lot uh, at first is the phrase in Titus 2 when Paul is talking to young men and he tells them to adorn the doctrine of God. And I've spoken about this before. And I'm thinking, I'm not the one to adorn the doctrine of God. You know, like keep me and the doctrine of God separate. So I don't mar the doctrine of God or, you know, and, and if the doctrine of God is perfect, how can my imperfect life adorn it? How can it enhance its beauty or or draw people to its loveliness when I have so many things wrong in my own life. And certainly it's meant to be by our love and obedience. But this also raises the question, in evangelism, why didn't he just use angels? Because they're perfect, their message would be perfect. And yet, as I've pictured it, I think I've said this illustration several years, uh, some years ago, But imagine us all in these boats in this huge storm and and God doesn't bring an angel of light into the storm to speak the word. He brings another struggling boat in the storm next to a boat in the storm. And that's how the doctrine is adorned also because we show in our failure and our weakness and our dependence and the hope that we have and the continued change God brings in our life, we give hope to people in the gospel. It's not that we pull away and show how much more righteous we are than anybody, and you could never be like us, and oh, we look down our nose at you. Oh, how could you do this or be that? It's very interesting, later in Titus, uh, actually this just came to mind, so bear with me here. We'll get through by 12, don't worry. Um, But there later in Titus, when he tells them to be ready for every good work in this world, to do good, to love, to speak evil of no one, and this means anyone that you know, not just believers, of course, 
to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because we were ourselves foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, etc. Hating and hating one another. See, the basis of our ongoing mercy and love is that we know ourselves to be so dependent upon his mercy. Calvin remarks here, this is a rem- or says here, this is a remarkable instance of the weakness of man and the grace of God. But I would say to you, each one of us is a remarkable instance of the weakness of man and the grace of God. Our church is a remarkable witness of the weakness of man, but the grace of God. We do not depend upon ourselves. We depend upon this great grace. This is going to be repeated in your life, in my life, in our church's life, in the church worldwide. There are so many issues and problems plaguing the church. That's why Babylon B has business, right? All the oddities and strange and terrible things that go on in the name of Jesus. We have to believe in the great promise of God that he will fulfill his promise. And he will use us believing people to do what he chooses to do, what he has uh, purposed to accomplish. And we may feel at times what we sang in the second hymn. Surely you will not let me die. Oh, speak and I shall live And here I will unwearied lie till you, your spirit gives. So we will cry out to him many times in our life in this way. But we, by God's grace, are this workmanship, an artwork of good for others. An artwork of good for others and the enrichment of our own lives. And yes, we speak the truth. We speak against falsehood, all of these things. And we long for the final day. God will restore his people in the meantime and use us to accomplish his will. And brothers and sisters, it's your and my responsibility to be this blessing. I mean, Abraham was restored to pray. That was his role. He's the prophet. We are, in that sense, the priesthood of God. We're the ones who intercede for the world. We're the ones who are the conduit of God's love and gospel to this world. What a joy. What an awesome privilege. This is the promise of God that we will be the blessing to the nations. Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, as we saw. He intercedes for Gerar. God opens the wombs of these pagan ladies, and this even leads to the thought, well, how about my believing wife? And in the next verse, she gives birth. So as we pour ourselves out for others, we are enriched ourselves in the grace of God. Even in persecution, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, even in persecution, you are called to be a blessing to the nations. What a privilege. 
This is God's call. And before we close, I I want to draw out one other aspect of this passage that stares us in the face. And the Old Testament stories are, are complex and rich. And one aspect of this, the way the story is told, it is a warning to us that we must not be governed by fear, but by faith. So even as God blesses Abraham in in spite of his failure, still, it is a story that had God not rescued Abraham, everything would have been a disaster. It doesn't commend that fear. It challenges that fear. It condemns that fear. It calls us away from that fear. Do not be governed by fear. Be governed by faith. Abraham, as he faced Gerard, did not believe in the promise of God. He didn't believe in the power of God. He should, he should, we should have faith in the powerful promise of God. The promise of God controls all things. It governs the world. It rules history and sets its course all the way to the end. The promise of God is trustworthy. It can never be sunk. And the question is, who do I think God is? What do I think his promise is? How strong is his promise? Will I be governed by that promise? It doesn't mean that we'll never experience fear. It will always, we will always fight fear, but we don't have to be governed by it or its promise of safety and well-being. And so, just to give a little practical help. Because in Christ we are being released from our fears. So why do we not meet, for instance, our neighbors or befriend our neighbors or care for them or show hospitality to them? Why do we not more as the people of God manifest the love of Christ to them in word and in deed? Be fear. You may say, well, I just don't care. Well, fear builds walls of indifference and neglect and hard-heartedness. It's such a practice part of our life. We don't even feel it anymore because we don't want to deal with it. Jesus blesses, Jesus promises, blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. And yet we turn that around and say, no, cursed are the merciful. (laughs) Cursed are the peacemakers. My joy will be ruined if I live my comfort zone. And this is just an example. We could talk about husbands and wives fearing to move into each other's lives and provide safe atmosphere for the sharing of our inner lives and our struggles and our fears and our problems. Some of us are fixed because of fear and patterns of angry, criticizing control or deceptive manipulation being governed by fear. But in all obedience, in all obedience, we must believe the promise of God of his blessing and enrichment as we give ourselves up to him. You see, suspicion is a kind of fear which Eve began with. Suspicion that God will not care for me. I have to strike out on my own. And that's the root of all sin. As we seek for happiness, we fear putting ourselves in God's hands. So we must believe the great promise of God 
to enrich us as we give ourselves to him. And I want to leave this verse with you to think about this in John 14. He says, "Whoever Jesus saying, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And later he says in the same vein, we will come to him and make our home with him. So you see, we can trust the promise of God and move toward Christ, move deeper into our relationship with God, the manifestation of his glory and beauty to us, to be in tighter in our home with him, or we can deny the promise and live by fear. We can see him in us and with us, and we can see him before us that in seeking this thing that is so hard and so frightening, so difficult for me to face, but I'm moving further into Jesus himself. Look what Abraham hazarded. What are you and I hazarding by our fear? The well-being of a neighbor, the well-being of loved ones, the well-being of his church. We must give ourselves so gladly to the, the, the promise of God. In a passage like Psalm 1, that blessed is he whose delight is in the word of the Lord and he meditates in it day and night. You see, to hear that promise and to believe it and then to move further and further into God's word rather than this suspicion slash fear And oh, Jesus faced it, didn't he, in the garden, sweating drops of blood for the all-consuming fear of facing the wrath of God. But it says in, in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's what I'm saying to you. For the joy set before you, the joy of knowing God, the joy of manifesting Christ, the joy of being made more and more free of sin and able to love. Angels had to uphold him. And then we read that the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 9 had to enable him to give himself on the cross. Helplessly, he gave himself in the most terrible fear and agony up to the will of God to rescue you. And then to fill you with that same spirit so that you might not be governed by fear, but you'd be governed by the love and grace of God, the promise of God. Oh, may God set us free to know his promise in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that no matter what difficulties we face, what conflict, what terrible struggle, what pressures, what series of things that we don't know how we're even going to get through them. That, Lord, in all of these things, it can become our seeking after Christ. It can become our knowing his presence, our knowing his favor, our fellowship with him, our belief in his attendance to everything we do, And Lord, it can just be another part of our worship and our gladness in you. As even sometimes trembling, 
we move into your will. Sometimes, maybe like Jesus, almost in, in shock and, and everything in us screaming out, no. And yet we move forward, believing in your great promises. Lord, set us free to belong only to Jesus, only to God, not to our fears. Bless us, we ask, for your glory and honor. Amen.